Welcome to the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. Upriser focuses on technology conversations centered in the future of work and how new technologies are applied and how work evolves. The Upriser podcast is brought to you by Topcoder. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner, VP at Topcoder. I am extremely excited today. I'm going to be talking with Jonathan Lips. Jonathan is a, I would classify you, Jonathan, as a true Renaissance man. You've got passions and accomplishments in technology, music, philosophy, theology, and frankly, quite a bit more, even things like linguistics. So, but if you recognize Jonathan by his name, it's likely as the architect and the project lead for Appium. Uh, and it's a, you know, if you don't know Appium yet, a very popular cross-platform language agnostic mobile app testing framework. And, you know, basically you're going to find Jonathan at the epicenter of better digital experiences, open source technologies, and making sure he's educating developer communities on best practices that are, you know, really centered in testing automation and AI. That's where you're going to find Jonathan. He'll probably be strumming along happily. So welcoming him to the show, to the Upriser podcast. Jonathan Lips, how you doing, man? Hey, Clinton. Thank you for that beautiful intro. It's really good to be here. My first time on your show. So excited to, excited to sit down and chat. Very nice. We've, we've had one repeat guest so far. He happens to be the CTO of Topcoder, so a little homerism in Fair play. <laughs> so so we're, I, think, I, think this, I think we're about 26 episodes in. It's growing like wildfire, so that, that's a cool, a sure sign that people are enjoying the conversation. So hopefully, uh, hopefully people are smashing that subscriber button, as they say on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I'm really excited to chat, man. So are you, are you currently in uh, Vancouver, BC, or are you in San Francisco? That's right. Yeah, moved to Vancouver about four years ago now from San Francisco. So definitely enjoy both places, and and uh, Canada is now my home. Nice, excellent. And you got the Canucks, which is uh, which is excellent as well, right? True. So yeah. <laughs> you got the Seattle Kraken coming, you know, in, in another year. So you have some great great hockey right around you, which is super cool. <laughs> uh, but it really is great to have you on the on the podcast, Jonathan. And one of the I'd say one of the nicest things you've done for me is that you put up this amazing website. You know, and it's not it's not braggadocious. It just kind of goes into goes into the things that you you know that that really interest you. Uh, and and there was there was quite a bit out there. Like I said, when I got into uh, you know the the opening uh, you know the opening statement, if you will, the, the preamble. Um, but one of the first things we're going to get into testing automation. We're going to get into AI. We're going to get into head spin. We're going to get into crowdsourcing and the communities that can get around this and certifications and all that stuff. And I'm excited to chat about that. However. I too am a music man. So when I saw on your, awesome. your, your yeah, your website, and we could see by your beautiful background there that you, of course, are, are very much into music. So, you know, what's, and I also saw that you and your brother are in a band, right? In a, and when I, and yep. I, let me get this right Splendor Hyaline, correct? Splendor Hyaline, that's right. Hyaline, Hyaline, yep. okay. So, I looked up Hyaline uh, as like almost like a connective, uh, you know, connective uh, fabric of the body. But is that, is that where that also comes from, from Hyaline? You know, it's the name of a it's the name of a boat in a in a book. Um, so I didn't I didn't put those two words together. But from my uh, my research, the the reason that we use the word Hyaline is it comes from a Greek word. I think it's hialos for like something that's really smooth. So it's really glassy. So you can imagine a boat being named after some very like smooth and calm waters. Be a good name for a boat. And sure. that's what we named our band. It's pretty bad SEO as it turns out. You know, I can't go and tell people <laughs> my band is Splendor Highland and they can go off and Google it. It's like, what are those words? And, you know, so yeah, how, how do you, if I could go back, I'd, I'd do it differently, but it, it's been, it's been like 10 years now, so you can't undo it. <laughs> well, it, it's, it seems pretty, you know, I, I dig the name. It's certainly one that sticks out and I, you know, it took some time to, to go down some of your, uh, some of your CDs that are out there or just really your music right that's on. out there. And, yeah. uh, you know, I definitely were picking up a couple of vibes. I would say some of the things coming out for me was, was a bit of like a death cab sound. And then I would say like, not so much a stripped away Ben folds cause Ben folds pretty minimalist, but like. Ben Folds yeah. without piano, like a guitar-driven Ben, ben Folds. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, both both artists I love. I mean, Death Cab is probably one of my top fives, um, you know, and a couple, couple tracks do have some piano on it, but yeah, mostly guitar-driven rock. 
Awesome, man. So like, you know, you do this with your brother. So what's, what does music mean for you? And, and if you could speak for him as well, but what's, you know, what does music do for you as a human? What's, what's the gravitational pull for you? Oh man. I mean, it's such a big, such a big part of who I am. Uh, I've been listening and playing music since I was little. Um, and obviously music has a way of, of touching you, your, your heart, your soul, uh, that, that other things don't. For me, it's a big way of kind of expressing emotions, expressing where I'm at. Sometimes I can have trouble articulating something I'm feeling, but if I, you know, get my guitar out, a song comes out, you know, even if I don't do anything with that song, just the act of sitting there, having some music come out, it's always very cathartic. Um, you know, there are different ways of writing music. Sometimes it's more of a creative, intentional endeavor. Sometimes it's more of this kind of emotional processing, but, um, everything that comes out of it, I just, I just love. And, you know, my brother and I have been, been great friends all our lives. And it was awesome that we, we both wound up as musical people. And, um, you know, he's now kind of full-time in music production. He's got a studio in California and records bands and does engineering and mixing and mastering and that kind of thing. So, I'm, you know, quite frankly, just lucky that, that he's uh, stuck around my projects and is willing to donate some of his uh, awesome production and, and drumming expertise. So cool. And your brother's, uh, I think, David, correct? So you got yep. David yep. still in Cali. You're up in, in Vancouver and British Columbia. Yep. And you guys get together and you, can, and you can rock out. Of course, you know, after the pandemic, when we could travel more freely <laughs> and all that jazz. And yeah, people have been, been talking brutal. about that. You know, it's, it's a, I think we're almost through. So let's just almost, let's act as if we are and just say, you'll be jamming yep. with your brother soon again, which is, uh, yep. which is super cool. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll pivot into, into like the, into the technology side of this and, and that, that part of the conversation, of course, but I definitely want to ground folks in, you know, who you are and what, and what motivates you. And for me, a lot of like my, my other hobbies, which, which do include music played for many, many years, but also writing for me, I have a sketch comedy show and I've, I've written scripts and, and you know what, for the nice. most part failed, you know, in, in, in the sense <laughs> of wrote the scripts, tried, tried to sell them, you know, do everything yeah. you possibly can learn how to package them, you know, yeah. put out CDs, write music, go, go on like lo little local tours. And when I say failed, I mean, you know, didn't make it to the big time doing those things. Right, However, right. every single time I, I, I chose to go down a path that was uh, passion led, I not only bettered myself, but I put myself in a better situation almost every single time to, to meet brand new people and gain new skills that actually ended up being super applicable into yep. what the heck I do today. Um, yep. So I just wonder if, if that's, if that's also been part of your world where things you've learned in music and other passion projects have really fed your professional career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember back when I was probably early in, in my undergrad days. Um, so this is like 20 years ago. Um, I think it was my grandfather was kind of, you know, being grandfatherly and Jonathan, <laughs> what are you going to do with your life? And, you know, how are you going to change the world and all these things? And I remember feeling really conflicted at the time, like, you know, I've got, I've got these different passions and these different things that, that I seem to, you know, do well. Uh, you know, one of them was, was philosophy, mm. you know, this kind of academic interest and in just kind of getting to the, the roots of the biggest uh, questions that are out there and kind of engaging on those. And another one was, was music. And then a third was, uh, you know, computer programming at the time. I just called it programming. Now it's like blossomed into this whole gigantic world of, of tech. Um, and you know, what ended up happening is I think I never really chose and I continue to do all three things at different levels. Um, I did try, you know, harder at, at some points of kind of making it in music and, you know, my, my big reality check, uh, when my brother and I put out our first LP, we were obviously very bullish on the whole thing cause it was our music. Uh, I convinced my, my parents again, this was like, I think very early on in college, convinced my parents to, to invest in our, our CD pressing project. We ordered a thousand CDs. And I think at the end of the day, we might've sold like 15 or 20 of them. Um, so, you know, that was a big kind of reality check saying, oh, okay, you know, if I want to make it in music, there's a whole nother, you know, mm. approach or a whole nother level that I'm going to have to do. And is that really what I, what I want out of music anyway? And I kind of decided at that point, 
I'm going to keep kind of keep recording it. I'm going to keep putting it out there for anyone that cares. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that I'm going to orient my my kind of business energies around because I have sort of better prospects and, and things that I enjoy like like technology. Um, but they continue to to feed one another. I mean, this whole year I've been working on this massive project uh, called Headspin University, putting out a you know super long and comprehensive. Uh, e-learning course on Appium and Selenium. And I found that as I was just in the weeds of that project, which was really difficult, really stretched me a lot of ways. Sometimes I just needed to like go over and pick up my guitar and like write a song and record it. And that was kind of how I spent the rest of that day. And then I kind of had energy to continue. So there may not necessarily be like a very direct tie-in, but just in terms of me and the way I kind of move through the world, I need to kind of be in these different spots to get the right kind of energy to kind of keep moving forward. And I don't know, some people can be really focused on one thing and I, I envy that in a lot of ways. Um, but I find a lot of, of beauty and, and value in uh, a life that, that involves you know, multiple passions that can, can feed one another and can, can push you forward. Yeah, I love it, and hence, hence the uh, the opening of the you know kind of the Renaissance man there, right? And having <laughs> having the interest be uh, in in many different places, and like you said, I love the the notion of being able to step back, go do something that is a little bit more in that moment creative. Because obviously, we'll we'll, we'll talk about Headspin University. The effort to to stand all of that up is in itself innovative and creative. And I also know because I do website changes and website copy and video and script writing and the script script editing. So all those, you know, they're all quote unquote creative. However, right. when you get into the into the nitty gritty nooks and crannies of of some of the tweaks you got to make, they're actually quite laborious, and they're, they're they have they they require tremendous focus and focused white hot time to get through stuff just to just yeah. to okay i've got to i've got to finish this so i find yep. it best to kind of uh, uh assign deadlines and make sure i chunk through and with that same same types of habits making sure that i'm off with my buddy writing a sketch comedy show i'm doing yeah. you know doing something with the, the kids and family or picking up the guitar as well so um definitely definitely some interesting parallels or just at the very least uh, feeling feeling about the, the process of wanting to dedicate to creation and also understanding that parts of creation are not all fun and games and a lot of yeah. it is a lot of it is the, the, it's a slog the, a lot of time yeah, yeah the serious underbelly to get through it right which is mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of what you learned early when you went and printed a thousand CDs and you're like wait a second maybe I could just <laughs> go play guitar with my brother and, and that would be that's enough for, for, for me to keep going. So it's a, it's, it's a good, a good start for us. So um, really happy we covered that first to get to know you a bit better. And then as we pivot over to the technology, you know, I, I, I'd love for folks to get a good understanding of in general um, testing automation, AI, and really, you know, you are an expert in Appium in many ways help to really uh, br bring that into the, into the, 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 the main, you know, uh, nomenclature of what people know about, about testing. Yeah. But if, if folks are coming to it completely raw, what do they need to know about kind of the state of testing automation and kind of a, maybe a bit of the history of, of Appium and where you, right. where, where, where'd you take it from? Yeah, this is a, it's a big question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was, I got kind of thrown into this particular part of the tech industry sort of randomly uh, myself, you know, I was working for a company in the space and, you know, we, we decided that, Hey, there's really nothing that great out there for testing mobile apps. You know, this is back in, you know, 2012 or whatever, where, you know, mobile devices had been out yep. and popular, but it had still only been, you know, four or five years at that point, we hadn't seen the explosion, which we've now seen, but you could predict it at that point quite clearly. So we saw that you know mobile app usage was going to just explode, and therefore mobile app quality was going to become a really important uh, factor of these applications that were being developed. And at that time, you could already see, and you can now see even more strongly, poor mobile app quality leads to you know really abysmal usage. Mm -hmm. You know you've got to have a really really high quality mobile app if you want to get the reviews in the app store that will get people downloading you at, at the rate that you need to succeed. You know, it's a pretty tough, tough market if you're just out there trying to promote your mobile app. 
the software development cycle, whether we're talking about web or mobile, has has sped up and has been speeding up and continues to speed up. You know, back in 1995 or whatever, you know, Windows wants to ship their you know flagship operating system. Uh, they spend years building it. They spend uh, months or years testing it, and they put it on a CD-ROM and they ship it to CompUSA or you know Circuit City or any of these places that also no longer exist. Yeah. Um, and then people bring it home, they put it in their computers, and it either works or it doesn't. Um, and then if, if there are any problems, they've got to wait till the next CD comes out, <laughs> the service packs or whatever, right? So that was a fairly, fairly long software development cycle, and it was limited by the kind of physical delivery mechanism that you had to work with. Uh, with the advent of the, of the internet and um, you know, web applications, we've moved into a world where you can deliver your application you know, multiple times a day to your users. Mm. You, could, you could ship a new, an incremental new version of your web application hundreds of times a day. But if you're still using really old quality assurance mechanisms, you can't achieve that level of speed that, that the delivery technologies now allow us to do. So if you still have a team of 50 people sitting somewhere, you know, walking through thousands of test cases by hand, so to speak, on your software, they're never going to be able to keep up with the flow of uh, new incremental changes to the software. So the, the, the testing world has evolved kind of in step with the development world, usually with a little bit of a lag. But uh, people have had to come up with ways to test their applications more quickly. And that has involved migrating from what we call manual QA, where somebody is just walking through test cases, you know, the way a user would by physically touching a phone or physically, you know, using their web browser. to something that we call automated QA or automated testing, where we write code that tests the code that we're trying to send to users. So instead of uh, describing test cases to human beings to implement with their own fingers and brains, we describe test cases in a programming language uh, that then have, you know, through some magical means, have the way to exercise the application and tell us whether it satisfied these particular test cases that we wanted to walk through. And so the kind of crucial piece there, that's sort of the conceptual evolution that's happened. But the crucial piece is you need technologies that facilitate the running of these automated tests. You need a way to write some Python code uh, that says, you know, log into this mobile application. You need a way to make that actually happen on a mobile device to test whether it worked correctly. So that's kind of the, the problem that Appium came into being to solve. There wasn't really, uh, there were ways, but there weren't what I would have considered really great ways to turn code into behavior on a mobile device in such a way that was reliable that you could rely on it for your testing. So that's what we did. We originally created Appium for iOS and then expanded to Android and it expanded to lots of other platforms in the last, you know, eight plus years of its existence. So that's a bit of the history. I'll, uh, I can keep going. I can talk forever, but I'll pause because <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you have some other things you want to talk about. But that stuff is truly foundational for us to pr progress this conversation, so so folks could understand the next things that are happening. And yep. speaking of like next things too, just I would say quickly. But what's your hey? 2012 comes along. That's what five years removed from Steve Jobs holding up an iPhone. I think I got my timelines right. I think that's 07 when he holds it up. Yep. 2000, right. 2012. You guys are like, well, there's there's a big market here. So now it's eight, you know, eight and a half years basically on. We're about to go into 2021 while we're recording this. And with that, how mature is the market, meaning the enterprises? How, if, if there's a sliding scale of, oh yeah, most of them are doing this really well at this point, all the way down to, we're kind of just yeah. still scratching the surface. Where does, where does, where does the majority of enterprises um, lay, if you will, when it comes to their understanding and, and use and mature use of testing automation? Yeah. So I would say that the enterprise is in a mature spot. So throw a, a dart at a wall of enterprise logos and chances are uh, they're going to be using automated tools for testing their web applications. 
and they'll be at different levels of maturity and expertise. Um, but there have been so many kind of best practices established along the way of uh, that particular industry developing. People by and large are doing this and are, are doing it, you know, decently enough. Um, the mobile world is different in my kind of ad hoc experience. It hasn't caught up um, to the same degree. I think that there are a couple reasons for this. One is that the, the technologies involved are just a little bit more difficult all around. So the, the development cycle for a mobile app is just, it's just a bit different. There are these kinds of uh, limitations that are imposed by the, uh, the app vendors, or I should say the operating system vendors like mm. um, Apple and Google. So you know, if, you want, if you wanted to release an iOS application 100 times a day, you just couldn't you know, because it has to go through a review process and things like that. So it's a bit of a regression in terms of what we were kind of used to um, with the whole development cycle for, for web applications. Also, the, the tools and level of expertise required to perform automated testing of mobile applications is a bit more, more difficult. Um, part of Appium's job is to make it as easy as possible. So we actually built Appium on the same foundation as another tool called Selenium, which had already become the standard for uh, web browser automation, Selenium WebDriver. Uh, so we wanted to kind of take an, a kind of known commodity and apply it to mobile application automation. And that was very successful. And I think is what ultimately led to Appium's kind of dominance in the space in terms of its popularity. Um, but at the same time, you know, just because you know how to test websites doesn't mean you know how to test mobile applications. And you need a little more specialized knowledge. You have to dig a little bit into the world of iOS development, the world of Android development, because iOS apps and Android apps are way more different than uh, the same web app that runs on different web browsers. So there's a lot more that you kind of need to learn. Um, it's also more expensive, right? Uh, automated testing of Web applications just requires a web browser, and you can run tons of those on a single, you know, commodity a desktop machine or laptop machine. Whereas mobile devices are expensive, and if you want to test on a real mobile device, you can only run one test on it at a time. And so, if you want to run lots of tests at a time, you've got to have lots of mobile devices, and that's a that's a big capital expense and depreciation and all that. Even if you're talking about virtual devices, so you know, virtualizing. Uh, using an iOS simulator or an, or an Android emulator, those are a lot more resource intensive and um, in some ways unreliable than web browsers. And so you're looking at a bigger overhead for you know, working with uh, farms of platforms that you want to test on. So there's just a lot more challenges that I think has explained why there's been a bit of a slower uptake. But also, you know, uh, web development had a big head start on mobile app development. You know, there is a, a solid decade where people were putting tools and practices into use for web development and we're just now kind of getting to that same spot of maturity for mobile app development. It's it's definitely interesting to understand the um what what become those those next hurdles, right? Because before you were you were talking about, hey, people are developing code so much faster nowadays. And then, then you've got this backlog of testing. And then because of that, you've got, you know, for the most, for a lot, very often can be poor experiences getting shipped because the testing wasn't done. But then yep. mobile has its, has its own, um, almost its own backlogging challenges beyond just the fact that, hey, yeah, we can go crank this out. But then how do we get this out to all this device specificity? And how, it just, there's so many other yep. challenges that, that, that kind of roll over with that, which I think is a nice way to segue into the 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 newest incarnation for you in, in the professional world, which is your your role at Headspin. So you know, I I think everybody gets what Appium is. You know, now that you defined it real nicely, and about about two two and a half years ago, I think it was, you took on an advisor advisory role at Headspin, and that's now right. that's yeah. grown into a director where you're really you're really in charge of. Um, what is Headspin University and, and the learning and education mechanism to get these developers and QA engineers up to snuff, if you will, to understand how to really wield these, these new platforms, these new technologies. Um, if, okay, so we, we get with Appium is, so then 
I, we understand Appian, we understand Selenium, but what's Headspin? Where, where does Headspin fit in? And it's, I, I know that it's right. very much focused on mobile, but how do you bring that f- uh, full circle for the audience? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, Headspin started out, I guess, sort of in, in parallel to Appium. Um, it was trying to solve a problem of um, basically, how do you figure out if there are any user experience or performance problems in a mobile app? Because uh, performance issues in mobile applications can be, uh, you know, sort of game killers. And, um, you know, if you have an app that is supposed to be running at a certain speed and it's too slow, people people leave and they switch to another app. So app developers are always looking for an edge to figure out, you know, how do I know that my app is going to perform well? How do I know that it's going to perform well in this particular condition? And so Headspin really was trying to say, how can we provide a platform for testing in all of these different conditions. And they were sort of, you know, test framework agnostic in the in a sense. Like you could do whatever you want on the mobile device, but but Headspin would provide a geographical location and a particular type of device and a particular type of network connection and a bunch of instrumentation so that you could see, you know, how your app was was truly behaving in all of these different environments. And then, you know, as the years went on, they decided to sort of apply some machine learning techniques to all of this data that they were collecting about your application so they can, uh, you know, we can now do things like, um, you know, tell you when we think there's a user experience issue as you walk through your application. Um, But at some point, you know, it became very natural for them to add support for Appium because, um, you know, people already have existing Appium tests that test the functionality of their applications. But what if people could run those tests in a remote environment, making it easy to have access to any type of device and you know, condition, device condition that they want? And at the same time, what if they could get all of this amazing performance data and instrumentation about their application essentially for free? So the kind of combination of Appium and Headspin made a lot of sense. You know, if you're a company that already has an Appium test and I come along and say, hey, instead of just running your Appium test locally on your own device, run it on our device and you'll get all of this really interesting, uh, insightful data and uh, about your application, that's a, that's a pretty obvious win. So uh, for a long time, Headspin has supported the Appium project. You know, they've hired full-time uh, Appium developers to help keep the Appium project um, moving forward really well. And when I was a kind of a consultant before joining Headspin full-time, uh, as you said, I was an advisor to the company, kind of helping with their, their Appium and mobile testing strategy and making sure Appium worked well on their cloud of, of test devices and things like that. And yeah, again, as years went on, and I was talking with, with Brian, the CTO, all the time, um, we kept coming again and again to this fact about the test automation industry, which is that people often just don't have the skill and experience to get the most out of the tools, mm-hmm. to get the most out of Appium, to get the most out of Headspin. You know, it's, it's new. People are being thrown into uh, jobs where they have the responsibility of testing a mobile application, but all they've done so far is web, web development or web testing. And so, you know, they're doing the best they can uh, the tools themselves are giving them at least the possibility of doing their job, but there's a big gap in terms of their knowledge and skill and experience. And, you know, there's a, a fair amount of educational content out there. But as I looked around, uh, I noticed there's just not a ton of really high quality content and not a ton of content that kind of keeps a thread from beginning to end the way that, say, an actual university semester course would. And I had been, you know, for years writing a blog called Appium Pro, uh, which was this weekly newsletter and blog that, you know, I tried to put out really interesting tutorials or tips. And I had migrated from just the blog into running uh, two-day workshops that were kind of like Appium intensives designed to get you from little or no knowledge to, you know, a more advanced level of knowledge. And so in conversation with Headspin, we all just kind of looked at each other and as we saw the kind of success of this Appian Pro stuff and the workshops, we, we thought, why not, why not do this at a larger scale and try and open up this type of really high quality learning content to the entire world through online courses? 
And so that was the initial idea for Headspin University, which I joined Headspin full time to work on. And, you know, we're starting with this exact idea of let's take Appium and Selenium, let's make it available and accessible to people who have no background in it. And let's pull them not just through the, the basics, but to relatively advanced topics, even like, you know, test suite refactoring and design and things like that, that end up becoming a really important part of the job, but end up being some of the skills that are harder uh, to learn without that kind of explicit instruction. So I spent this whole year kind of working on, on that course. And now we're, you know, launching that and taking the, the next step of figuring out, okay, what are the next kind of really uh, long, high quality courses that we're going to add to our portfolio. So that's, uh, that's where we come from. I, I love the the journey there too, because it it starts with, you know, the open source technologies, right? So it starts on on the, the backs of Appium, like, it, like we we're talking about there. Yep. And then it's the, you mentioned earlier, like, well, you know, you have all this barriers and hurdles to doing these things uh, very well in mobile for the reasons you mentioned earlier. So then Headspin comes along and they're like, well, we could probably eradicate a bunch of those things, or at least we could chip away at a lot of those things yep. and get rid of the minutia, make it much more accessible so more people can use it, get the kind of speed that web developers are used to, but bring, bring it to the mobile world, at least, at least yep. you know, try to even the playing field a bit. And, yep. yet, and yet there was still this, um, this realization that, okay, cool, you know, you would not be creating a university unless you were looking at it and saying, uh, "Oh, you know what, boy, oh boy, the world is going to need these people who who need these who need these freaking skills." Like, it, there's yep. there's still such a boom in mobile still going on, right? Uh, there's still there's still billions of people across the globe who who are not yet mobile enabled and will be in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, yep. And so the boom is going to only only still continue, which is which is super interesting. So it's again the foresight to say, well, we, we need to kind of train, give these people something really grounded, but also the the hook that I think is really interesting to talk about. I want to get your opinion on it, is it's not just a Khan Academy, which is super useful. My I supplement with my kids through Khan Academy and you know, all those different things. Yeah. However, with Headspin University, you're also putting the focus on um, certification. So, you know, the, right. the earning, the badging, the certification of something and the real world impact that that can, can have. So love, love for you to talk a little bit about um, how you arrived at, at the concept of, you know what, we really should go down the, not just education, but really anchor around certifications people could, can earn. And also if you could kind of expand on that and, do you have a personal philosophy when it comes to like the future of work and just the the future of education? And how much of it do you think is really going to be skills based going forward versus traditional, you know, two year, four year, six year education programs right. versus like right. really come, going in and getting getting good at something in what is a condensed time frame in, in a yep. more focused time frame? Yep. Well, let me answer that that last question first. Um, so yeah, I I don't really you know, privilege traditional forms of education. I mean, I'm, I've had a career as a software developer and it's been great, but I went to school to study philosophy. You know, I think that there is something amazing and beautiful about liberal arts education. And I think if people can, it's great to spend four years uh, getting a bigger picture of the world and, you know, I think it should probably be free and not as insanely expensive as, as it is in the U.S. And uh, it's, it's done better a lot of places in the world. I think, it's, I think it's essential as human beings to have that kind of space to explore, to think, to consider deep questions, to find, you know, ourselves in those questions, to decide how we want to address and approach the world and the problems that we see in the world. I think all of those aspects of a kind of traditional, you know, four-year college education or whatever are great. Um, but I don't think it that necessarily maps directly to work in the way that it used to. And certainly credentials and degrees, in my mind, are a lot less important than abilities and skills. You get what you need to be able to do your job. And for me, it's always been kind of, what, what hands-on projects do I need to do to understand this thing? 
you know, I love reading. Uh, when it comes to skills, there's no replacement for actual practice and actual effort. And so it, then kind of bringing it back to your first question, um, for me, just putting a bunch of information out there is great and is useful and people learn from it, but it's not a guarantee that anybody actually changes or becomes more proficient at something. Um, the things that I read about, I don't become good at necessarily. It's the things that I practice that I become good at. And um, one of the ways that we wanted Headspin University to differ from a lot of the other content that's available is we wanted to kind of uh, require hands-on practice with it. So in my Appium and Selenium Fundamentals course, there are, um, I think, 10 or 11 different challenges that require the learners to actually write code, actually wrestle with uh, you know, learning a few things a little bit further than I've explained in the text to kind of make them work a little bit on their own, not just have things kind of spoon fed. Um, these would be like kind of like midterm or, or final projects, if you will, in like a traditional type of education. And then they have to actually run these challenges on the Headspin platform to make sure that they work. And so because uh, Headspin actually has a device platform where students can run Appium and Selenium tests, we can then go and verify that, that they've, uh, you know, satisfied the requirements for these particular challenges. So we believe that we are in a position to actually certify um, students that have taken these courses to say that, yeah, you've actually, you know, you can do this thing. You know, wherever your knowledge in your head is at, we're not exactly sure because we're not interviewing you and asking you questions, but we know that you can do the job, we know that you can do the challenges, which I've, you know, designed to be, frankly, you know, difficult because I want people to, to have to work towards it a little bit. And that's different than just asking a multiple choice question or, or putting a quiz in front of somebody. I know that I can, you know, get 100% on a quiz while actually not learning very much at all because I, you know, anybody can uh, retain a few things in their short-term memory. But actually going through and doing a variety of projects that in my opinion is how you learn things and that's what's that's what's important you know when it comes to to doing work you know as a philosopher i also have to say that you know skills are not the only things which are important in life and in your job uh, when it comes to skills i think that practical approaches are the best but as a human being as somebody who is more than your job you also need to be thoughtful you need to ask questions like why do I want to learn these skills? Why do I want this particular job? What am I doing in the world? And that's not something that my course is going to teach you or any other course or any skills-based course. So I am trying to say like, there's huge value in, you know, kind of abstract uh, thinking and, you know, philosophizing and all that kind of stuff that you might encounter in a more traditional education. But when it comes to the topic of, you know, how are we going to prepare people for, um, you know, work so that, that they can have, you know, what they need to get by in life as well as contribute to uh, the different problems that there are in society. Um, this type of kind of skills-based approach is, is, I think, the best. And I think you're, you're painting a, a very fair and balanced picture there in terms of like, uh, you know, hey, it's, it's if you can get both of those things going in your life, then, then you're probably putting the right mix together for right. likely success, right? There's, there's, right. there's so many different outcomes and permutations out there, pro, you know, probably infinite or approaching an infinite number that, that can happen given, given all of life's uh, craziness and things that, that would, we just don't have control over. However, yep. These are things we might have control over, like getting into skills-based education. And if we right. have the opportunity to get that broader look, uh, I would say, especially if you can when you're, when you're younger, because that gives you a chance to, you know, probably have less bias at, at that point as well. Um, yeah. You're setting yourself up as a human for uh, likely a pretty good path. And, and uh, you know, at, at the very least, probably a pretty pretty exciting one with, with some, uh, with some good twists and turns and, and, and bumping into, <laughs> right. bumping into people that can uh, elevate you and, and you them, which is, which is pretty cool, yep. which is really what it's all about. And when you were talking about, you know, learning through doing so much of that philosophy and so much of that carries over in the top coder community as well. And that's, yeah. that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's outcomes based. It's, it's, 
peer versus peer. However, it's also collaborative and it's also tons of knowledge share. And, uh, and it's, it's really, you know, it's a lot of self-selection in Top Coder too, which is yep. going to be similar to your world. Because like you said, it, the skills, the ability to go learn the skill might be right before the individual and you might make it, you know, gamified and, and easy in the sense of, hey, this is the steps you should take and click here and let's start and give them the best path ever. However, if they're not curious enough and, and there's not enough pull there, really the internal yep. push, yep. they're, they're not going to do it anyway. But, but when they do take that leap and they move down there and, they, and then you're challenging them on, a, on, these, on these individual basis and like you said, these little midterms and final exams, well, when they get done, they're not just having a cert that they could say, okay, I could go do this now. That's, that's good, certainly cool, and hopefully it get, helps them get work. However, they've definitely progressed like as a human, they've they've done yep. something they probably didn't think they could do. Um, or well, not- that's that's exactly the feedback that I've gotten from you know we had a large kind of beta cohort go through my course, and we picked people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And you know, multiple times people came to me and said, you know, I'm just so I'm so stoked and so proud of myself because this wasn't something I thought I could do. Um, but you know, you, you explained it, and you know, step by step, and um, I'm now doing this thing that I didn't think was possible for me. And so it's, I mean, it's hugely inspiring to me uh, as a teacher and instructor in that mode to hear that kind of feedback. So I'm really excited about the potential of, of this course and other courses to help people feel like they're unlocking something in themselves that is intrinsically interesting to them or helps them, you know, get to a better situation in life or whatever it is, all yeah. kinds of good reasons. Yeah, you get that. You definitely get that win-win-win effect there. And I'm not trying to be trite about that. I, I literally mean the individual can win by by this advancement and and what they pick up in in, in this. And then yep. the technology, you know, the platform itself, in this case, Headspin, gets this this boon of people that can really manipulate this in in the ways in which you know is possible and you know yep. what the the effect is. And then the market, yep. the market yep. gains. Market, yeah, there are companies get yeah. you know. Uh, more efficient, you know, projects completed and things like that. And, you know, apps get ultimately get better quality for, so everybody wins. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't happen all, doesn't happen all that often, but, uh, but that's, but it's, this is, this is one where it truly looks right. that it's set up the right incentives across the board, which is like yeah. th- three axes, not just two axes, which is super yeah. cool. And I'd love to rotate the conversation into um, the, the other van that's interesting is the intersection of crowdsourcing and developer communities and Headspin University testing automation. So first I'd like to talk about uh, from a developer standpoint, what kind of skills are, you know, what kind of skills or attributes or traits are, you know, do, do you feel are important for folks who are coming into Headspin U uh, that you think, you know, they probably need and, and And if they differ, how do they differ from what, what a, let's say, a traditional Java developer would, would have to have? Are there differences? Yeah, I, I would say that in some ways the bar is kind of even lower for test automation than app development. Um, you're dealing with a bit of a smaller domain. You are typically working with the app from the outside, so you don't have to know all the ins and outs of the app development frameworks and things like that. The more you know those things, the more you know, I think helpful they are. But, um, you know, my course tries not to assume any existing knowledge. So it teaches people Python uh, computer programming and it teaches, you know, the, the concepts of testing. It teaches um, the kind of history behind Appium and Selenium and the, the APIs that you need to get familiar with. And then it, it goes into a bunch of hands-on stuff. So there's... Um, there's not a whole lot that you need from the outset. Obviously, if you if you know how to use a, a programming language, that's going to put you in good stead. If you are an app developer, that's going to put you in even better stead. But those things aren't aren't required. If you're already an Android developer, uh, you know you could th- this course will be I think pretty pretty easy, pretty familiar to you, and um, you'll be able to get through it pretty quickly. Very nice. And then. To the topic of crowdsourcing and external developer communities that are already out there, in this case, you know, uh, Topcoder and Headspin are are doing some great things together. Right. Where do you kind of how do you see the opportunity there? What's what's the what's the one plus one is three, and how does that how does that math add up for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that um, 
maybe one way of putting it is kind of a, a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, you know, we're trying to help raise the tide of, of developer skill. Um, you know, from what I understand about, about top coder, you guys are trying to match, uh, developer skill with particular problems that, that need solving and, and kind of let the, let the, the highly skilled, um, you know, candidates float to the top of a particular challenge so that they can, you know, be utilized in, in better ways and things like that. Um, so I see us as kind of very, very complimentary. Um, I think that, um, you know, in this, in this world where the skills of test automation are very high in demand, you kind of don't need to think too hard about, you know, what the, the long game is. I think you just, you just, you know, try and, and meet that demand. And the people that meet those other skills will have a lot of other opportunities to, um, you know, either go out and freelance on their own and, you know, approach it in more of a gig, gig based model, or their resume would be boosted such that they could get that job at that company that they want. Um, they could participate in uh, top coder challenges or other things like that and keep, keep refining their skills um, based on new problems. So there's probably a lot that I'm, that I'm not thinking about. I just kind of see like, there's definitely an opportunity here. Um, like we talked about earlier, there's this kind of, you know, triple 3D win um, situation going on. You know, there's a, there's a far off question of, you know, what is the future of this industry in general, which I think we ask about, about any industry nowadays. Uh, the, the QA industry has been disrupted by automated QA, which, you know, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly meant that if you are a manual tester, you're in a, you're often in a position now where you have to kind of learn automation and, and upskill and, and learn some of these new technologies or your job might not be there. Um, and so there's a, a bigger question about will this type of work itself be automated away or be eaten by AI and machine learning uh, processes and tools at some point in the future. Um, and that's something that, that people in the industry are really afraid of and talk about a lot. Like a lot of automated testers are, afraid that they're going to get, uh, you know, eaten by AI. Um, I don't see that as practically happening anytime soon based on the advances in AI for testing that I'm familiar with. Um, but my kind of response in these situations is always like, well, hey, you know, the best you can do is kind of stay at the front of the curve. Right now, that means being an expert in test automation. And in five years, it might look like being an expert in you know, facilitating the use of, of AI-powered testing tools. Um, but if you if you kind of get behind the curve, then you're not likely to be able to to see the next thing that's coming up. Um, so I've kind of rambled into a little bit of the future of the industry there. But, but I think that's kind of my general philosophy: is like, whatever curve you see, you know, better to be on the front end of it than otherwise. Yeah, and I, and and I think that's I think that's just great practical advice for you know really. Anybody who's listening there, especially if you're in uh, in technology or really any any career, but specifically technology, because it it does move so quickly. Uh, there's 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 constant change. There's constant opportunity to go learn the next thing. And I think at Topcoder, like one of our one of our core purposes, the reason we exist is is to offer opportunity. And right. And, and that's opportunity to the, to the talent that can be distributed anywhere across, you know, anywhere across the globe. And of course it is. Um, and we're, you know, we often focus on, all right, well, what's, what is coming next? So like our CTO and others will, you know, strategize and say, okay, well, we really need to, a couple of years ago, 2016, 2015, let's get some blockchain, you know, evangelism going inside Topcoder. Let's raise a blockchain community. Uh, yeah. Earlier days, cloud technologies. Now we're seeing lots of, you know, edge IoT technologies yeah. where people want to have a go-to, you know, a vestibule they, they can go to, walk through and understand they can automatically tap into um, what are credentialized, secure developers who really know their stuff, who really know that, 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 that specialized yep. stuff and can, and can work at the drop of a hat, uh, which goes back again to uh, the, the opportunity we talked about earlier, but also why you're spending so much time create, creating courses that when they walk through that door and they take an individual step, they get something of value, which is just a different dynamic than it, it was five, you know, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. So it's a, yep. 
it's it's you know it's definitely quite exciting. How much of this work in general, Jonathan, um, testing automation and, and you know mobile app experience testing? How much of the work would you say that enterprises and you know your customers they just don't want to do anyway? Like they don't want to be the ones to do it because their developers want to work on the next amazing feature, right. but they don't they don't want to do this stuff. Is that also part of the equation? Well, yeah, I mean it's a it's a classic. Um, you know, it's a classic task that developers don't want to do. You know, developers love making new things. Yeah. This is a stereotype, of course, uh, and, and it's hopefully decreasingly true. But, you know, the stereotype is that developers love making things. Um, they don't love going through the, the tedious process of finding bugs and making sure that everything works exactly the way they wanted it to. Um, so, yeah, again, stereotypically, there are a lot of enterprises out there that have uh, developer teams that would probably rather not test things themselves. And that's why we often have this kind of split between development and QA in these large organizations, where oftentimes the QA personnel uh, don't even really have access to the developer team. They just get a build of an app and they're supposed to test it and then you know, write feedback um, about what might be broken. Um, this is obviously an inefficiency. Um, so in the, the, the kind of typical methodologies that you hear promoted today, uh, people talk a lot about making sure that development and QA are a part of the, the same phases of the software development cycle and that even having developers write automated tests is a good practice so that, you know, it's not that they're kind of outsourcing the QA. Um, in terms of you know the right setup for every situation, it's it's impossible to come come out with some kind of uh, definite rule of thumb. Um, so there are circumstances where a company might be better off kind of outsourcing their QA to highly skilled folks. Um, you know, it, in general, I do find that testing is there's an art component to it that goes beyond the use of the tools that has to do with understanding the application, has to do with understanding user intent, uh, how, you know, kind of getting into the psychology of the user to try and figure out what things might be wrong. And if I'm just a, a kind of gig worker equivalent and get thrown a random problem, I may not have that kind of long-term context that a kind of dedicated tester on the team would. So I do see that I do see there being value in kind of long-lived um, QA or testing personnel because they get to know the app in a way that sometimes even the developers don't know the application. Um, and so, you know, however, however companies get that is of course up to them. And there are a lot of setups I've seen that involve kind of long-term or permanent kind of outsourcing of QA, and that has has worked well. I mean, the important thing is just that the people who are writing and running the tests are thinking like testers. It's great for them to have relationship and access to the development team because there's often a lot of back and forth and, you know, figuring out what's a bug or saying, Hey, we need this to be able to test the app appropriately and things like that. And, and I think what's pretty cool is the things that you're, whether you're doing that in house and you decide, you know what, we do need a, we need some QA leads who I think the way you described it was like, you really had the intimacy and the the forethought to sit there and think through intent, you know that, right. that those are kind of the two the two eyes, the intimacy and the intent that came up for me. Whether or not you're like, okay, I'm, we're going to have that as a as a you know a part of our team, we're going to dedicate towards that, or we're going to look to uh, platforms plus gig to really supplement that. Um, I do think the last nine or ten months or so have really shown that the there's a, a collapse in a good way of the the collaboration tools of the communication tools and right. platforms where even if people are external and are, are outside the four walls, they can still get that intimate look. They can still, they can still care enough. You know, maybe that's the thing people, people would think, well, right. that person won't, won't ever have that intimacy because they're not here. Well, you know, no one's here right now. We're all, we're all distributed and yet uh, yeah. great, great work is still getting done. So I think it it's levels one of, it for sure. Yeah. And yeah. it, it just, at least it opens the, the aperture where it's like, okay, well maybe, maybe folks outside could, 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 you know, uh, uh to you know, give a damn just as much if you will, right. Being like that intimate with it and really want to poke yep. at every nook and cranny to, um, 
to 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 discover and really really go through the 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 process of uh, human intent. That part yep. to me, that part to me, when I asked earlier about what are some of the skills that a that this kind of QA engineer has to have that maybe like a Java developer, let's say a job developer is like, okay, hey, go do these things this way, and they want to write elegant code, but it's it's sometimes still like a didactic process to do these things this way. Whereas over here, there is a bit more of like a human sleuth. (laughs) There's there's, (laughs) there's more of like a matlock of a discovery that we have to sit inside someone else's shoes and not just get a command to go the right way, but really think, what was this person trying to accomplish? Um, So I just want from those human skills, if if you see those shine through when people are coming through uh, Headspin University as well. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's, that's, again, the type of thing that is going to be resilient in the face of an AI takeover. Mm. Um, And it's, and it's the type of, of, of way of thinking and skill that can, can exist in the same person, regardless of kind of where you sit in the software development cycle. So it's stereotypical of a Java developer that they just take a list of requirements and kind of hack it out. Um, But of course, to be a really good software engineer, you need to think about the requirements yeah. that are being given to you. You need to be a product person, just like the product owner, you know? So in a sense, I, I think the best way of developing software is where every person that's involved uh, has a stake in kind of every aspect of the app, including the kind of user-facing aspects of it. So if you're a software developer building features, you have to think, uh, you know, is this the right feature for the users? What what are my users going to actually do with this feature? Is that actually what I'm building? Just because a product owner told you to build something doesn't mean it's actually the right thing to build. You know, everyone's responsible. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, I think there's just a way of thinking that makes you a, a good tester or a good developer that can all exist in the same the same person. Um, that's why some of the like early modules in my course are like, let's stop and talk about what is testing? What are we trying to do here? Because a lot of learning material just says, oh, you want to learn this tool? Here's how you learn this tool. But of course, it's like you can do all kinds of crazy things with a tool that aren't the right thing. You know, you can use Appium to write the wrong tests for your application or to write them in the wrong way. So we have to have some kind of bigger uh, driving philosophy behind what we're doing. We have to stay engaged with that and we have to stay thoughtful. And that's kind of one of my biggest critiques of um, a lot of the training that's out there and a lot of the, the, the students that come out of other types of training, they know how to execute certain routines and how to use certain tools, but they don't know why and they, they, they don't have a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that's really important to me with Headspin University. I want to help produce not people just that know how to use Appium, but testers that are going to sit well in a team and know uh, know how to elevate the entire team, even if their technical responsibilities are only this one small area. And I, I love the the graceful pushback uh, that you gave me there to say, well, wait a second, that thoughtfulness should be you know embodied in, in anybody <laughs> who's who's worth their salt if they're working on products because. Right. And but I, I love the idea that hey, if you get something from your 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 head of product, but it just doesn't make sense, well. You know, it's 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 incumbent on you as someone creating this to uh, speak up and and likely suggest whatever might be more elegant, what what might be the better experience there, and and uh, and put that out there clearly. So so you're not you're not just banging banging the code out because you know right. somebody somebody told you to go do that. So so I definitely like the uh, the pushback to hey that thoughtfulness can be applied everywhere, which is mm-hmm. really cool. Uh, I do have one more question for you, then we'll then we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll call it a wrap, Jonathan. So uh, 2019, we had our Top Coder open down in Houston, Texas. That's our gathering of like our best of our best. So we we rate, we, we rank uh, all of our members. And then throughout the year, they're competing in different categories. We fly them in from around the globe for some, the, the big uh, final competitions, which we call TCO, Top Coder yep. Open. And yep. it's, it's a ton of fun. And Dave Messenger, who uh, gave, he's our CTO, he gave one of the keynotes at our Innovation Summit um, last year. and he really talked about the DevOps cycle and making sure that you get QA way, like way up front. And he talked yeah. about the, 
He talked about critical issues and how much more expensive they become the longer you wait to basically address QA. Um, mm-hmm. I see you smiling and kind of perk it up and like getting ready, but like uh, <laughs> philosophically, how, how do you address that with, um, with companies? And then how, how, what's Headspin's kind of take on that? Is it applied early on? Is it, is it applied continuously so that when you get to shipping, you actually got pretty darn great experiences. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that that sentiment. And, you know, people have been writing for, for years now on how to, quote, shift left um, mm. with, with your testing. People are now talking about shifting right with your testing too, which really, it all boils down to just do testing uh, as soon as you can and as long as you can, um, because testing is what gives you information about how your product is doing. If you're not testing, there's a bunch of question marks, right? Mm. Even when you test, there's question marks, but you can kind of, you know, reduce the question marks. Like when you're playing Minesweeper, right? And you, you click on a, a, a cell and it expands a lot and there's no bombs there. You're like, whew, okay. I know there's no bombs in this particular area. So if you think about like shipping your app is like shipping a state of a Minesweeper game, right? If you have nothing uncovered, uh, that's pretty dangerous. Whereas yeah. if you've got pretty much everything uncovered and you see like, oh, this is where that bomb is now, and you've kind of, you know where that is, um, then you can have a lot more confidence in shipping. So uh, testing early on, which is a, a great practice, just means that that you have the, the benefits of that feedback that can inform future iterations. And you, you're not going down what could be a dead end. You're not putting too much work into a feature that's going to turn out to be buggy in a certain way that then means a whole lot of re- rework has to happen. Um, and then on, on the other side, on the kind of shift right side, you know, once your app is out there in the wild, you want to be testing that app in the wild too. You want to be making sure you're getting the, the appropriate kinds of, of feedback from, from actual usage, performance feedback, uh, user feedback, and those types of things. Because if you're not testing at that point, then that can't inform, you know, uh, your future features or can't tell you whether the thing that you spend a million dollars building is actually paying off. Um, so these are, these are common sense ideas, but it's still always shocking like how little testing actually happens. So it's still really important for us to go out there and bang that drum. And I think that, you know, Headspin is trying to, you know, push, push testing to both sides. Yeah. Um, the fact that it has these real geographical locations with real cell networks and all that, that's a very much like a shift testing, right? Um, sort of idea like, hey, make sure that as your app is out there, you're actively testing in all these different areas. It's also giving you the opportunity to verify different geographical locations, different performance assumptions before you get get out there and have to do that kind of ladder form testing. So yeah, fully, fully on board with that, that approach. And it's, you know, if, if you're going left and you're going right, well, then you eventually meet. So it's kind of a conti- <laughs> a continuous 360 philosophy of testing that, well, it's just yep. like you said, it's it's just common sense. That's probably what will give you the best coverage. And you're going to find, I love the, the, the Minesweeper, um, you know, uh, analogy there, which uh, I promised one last question, but it does bring up to me um, the game. You've talked about, you know, shipping a game. So there was all over Twitter today that the giant games, <laughs> right. cyberpunk, cyberpunk. <laughs> cyberpunk is now being, I think, recalled for PS4, right? Just straight across the board. Um, yeah. You know, you've, you've been in enough product dev uh, environments and, and it just throughout your, you know, your, your professional career. How is it simply a lack of testing on that device? Like what, how does it, or is it, is it just people well, really wanting to push it through? Like yeah, if you had to yeah. take a guess, like how does that ship when, when clearly it, they, somebody knew there was going to be performance issues on that yep. particular device. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know this particular example, but I would probably, if I had to blame one thing, it would probably be some kind of internal corporate dysfunction. Yeah. Um, you know, games are notoriously hard to test to completion. The The variety of, of situations you can end up in a game is usually close to infinite. Yeah. Um, and the tools for testing games don't have the same level of maturity. So, you know, you can use Appium to test games, but testing a, a, an open world, you know, 3D, you know, AAA title like that is just, that's not going to happen. So you, those are all relying on human testers. Um, 
are your human testers testing on all the same hardware that your players are on? Probably the in-house testers have all the best hardware, the same that the developers are developing mm. on. Did they do adequate beta testing? Well, I don't know. Um, but at some point, you're right. I think, I think somebody knew, like, this isn't going to be the best experience on such and such platform. And somebody made the decision to ship it anyway because they had a deadline. Yeah. Um, so that's usually what ends up being kind of the cause of these things. And then unless there's sufficient financial repercussions, they just keep doing the same thing. So we'll see what happens in this particular case. But yeah, it is a pretty good example of, well, listen to your testers or do more testing, right? Yeah. And I think that the point you made there of, you know, hey, your in-house folks in that case, like you said, might be on the best equipment where, where that stuff is just not so much swept under the rug. It's just not evidence. It's just not, you know, yep. it's, you're not seeing it as much as yep. somebody, uh, you know, halfway across the globe who's playing on, playing on a PS4. So interesting though. So well, really, yep. really good to chat with you, Jonathan. We've been chatting with Jonathan Lips, the Director of Learning and Education Programs at Headspin. Jonathan, want to wish you an awesome and happy holidays. I hope you get to jam with your brother soon and you make it some sweet, mm -hmm. sweet music in his California studio. Uh, love to make it out there one day, possibly. <laughs> but I do want to ask you, how can folks, if folks are interested in Headspin U, they want to get going, what's the appropriate step or place they can go visit? Yeah. Great. Um, please do visit. If you go to ui.headspin.io slash university, um, you'll see an opportunity to look at the courses we have available. We have some free courses available and some of the paid stuff, uh, which is what I've been talking about today, will be out soon. And uh, you can register and uh, be notified when anything new is released. Awesome. Well, th thanks again, Jonathan. It was really, really a pleasure. And uh, just excited to see this, this space continue to grow because as we talked about towards the onset, uh, you know, there's just billions and billions of people who are, who are just coming on online for the first time ever. And they've got mobile on, they, they are, they are mobile first. That is their life. That's how they're mm -hmm. growing up. So this, this philosophy uh, and, and everything that Headspin does and really getting that education out there to rise up so many more developers uh, to get these new skills. I'm bullish on it, love it a ton. And, and I think the marriage of crowd and, and communities plus Headspin U makes a ton of sense. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Thanks a lot, Clint. It's been great to be here with you and I had a ton of fun chatting and I hope everyone had a ton of fun listening too. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon, Jonathan. All right, peace. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the Upriser podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, so it's pretty easy. And of course, I encourage you to follow us out on social at Upriser, U-P-R-I-S-O-R on Twitter. And also, I would encourage you to follow Topcoder at Topcoder, T-O-P-C-O-D-E-R. 